the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, Associate Editor at the Tracking Board, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts... Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. And I'm Hui Shen Bui, a writer for Slash Film and the Tracking Board, and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And we're joined by my high school friend and uh, enthusiasts of Asian cinema and dramas, Elise Moy. Elise, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi. Um, again, like Hoichan said, my name is Elise. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm a grad student now, and I've been, I guess, an enthusiast of Asian cinema and dramas since around 2006, so it's been a good long time. So um, Hoichan and I would always you know, chat and bond over it in high school, so when she said that she was doing a podcast episode, of course, I said I would help out. Yeah, so um, Elise, as you can tell, our episode today will be about uh, Asian cinema and dramas. Um, I kind of talked about this in our last episode. This is our two-parter for the Asian wave in general. But um, dramas were, J-dramas specifically, were a huge influence on my pop culture upbringing. And I watched tons of them, as well as Japanese movies. More than, like, I can remember, I did, like, a deep dive recently into some of the movies I watched, and I was like, I don't remember watching some of these. How did I see so many? (laughs) I obviously, like, it makes sense now why I did not go out that much. (laughs) But um, Japanese dramas were were really great influence on me, and, like, they had so many great stories to tell. And uh, I think, like, Japanese movies as well, and um, now with like the Korean wave happening with Korean dramas and Korean films, and you're seeing a lot of like Korean films in cinemas now, and like fe- film festivals really making an impact. Um, those are those have a lot of really great creative storytelling that you don't see in Hollywood. Um, so basically, what we're going to be talking about here is um, kind of a continuation from last episode, how the anime boom and like the Japan wave has kind of ended in like the mid-2000s, and it's kind of made way for the Korean wave, uh, or Hallyu, Hallyu wave, as it's been called. Um, it's been uh, not only with dramas and movies, but with K-pop as well, which I have talked about before. So, as you if you've been a follower of the podcast since the Inception episode, <laughs> yes. as, as in the first episode. Wait, no, it was in the second episode. Second episode, episode actually, it was the second episode. been talking about Big Bang. And K-pop. Five ever. Yeah, Big Bang. I was actually gonna wear my Big Bang T-shirt today, but it was too hot outside. It's because the long sleeve shirt. I know. (laughs) Okay, but um, yeah, I feel like personally, I've seen like a big uptick in the popularity in Korean dramas and Korean cinemas um, recently, Uh, and I feel like they've been not only been uh, popular amongst Asian Americans, which are like the main. Uh, audience for them, as I've seen, like a lot of my families are always watching dramas. I, my, I had like a family dinner recently where all my aunts were talking about the latest K drama, and I was like, oh my god, this is too much. Um, but also uh, at the film festivals, like I said, like a lot of Korean films, a lot of Japanese films are really making an impact um, beyond the domestic market. So you're seeing films that are critically lauded, like Train to Busan last year, or you're seeing a lot of films, filmmakers from Korea or Japan really making their way into Hollywood. So you see like Park Chan-wook, who um, first broke on the, on the scene with Old Boy back in, oh, 2000. Was it 2001? It was 2000 something, yeah. Look this up. Old Boy. I know uh, Spike Lee did a remake that wasn't as great. Yeah, um, so we're seeing that influence as well. Um, 
2003. Ah, okay. Old Boy in 2003, and he's been making a lot of really anticipated films ever since then, most recently The Handmaiden, which was really great last year. Um, so I want to talk about this wave. Why it's happening? Uh, why is it happening now? And do we think it's cyclical? Because, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen a lot of Asian cinema really make a big influence on uh, the international uh Scene. You know, we had Akira Kurosawa back in the 1960s, uh, who was like this premier Japanese filmmaker and was really lauded, and a lot of filmmakers today in Hollywood and abroad uh, take him as influence. Um, yeah, I think most specifically with the Magnificent Seven movies. Yes, exactly. um, Seven Samurai was his like epic three-hour movie that he did in the 50s, mm-hmm. and then in this in 1960-something, uh, they remade that with cowboys mm. in the Old West. And then most recently, um, the uh, Anton, Antoine Fuqua's uh, remake of the, of the Seven. Magnificent Seven, mm-hmm. um, which uh, was taken inspiration by Seven Samurai. So, mm-hmm. um, so I want to ask first, Lulvi and Anya, uh, their thoughts and uh, experiences with Asian cinema um, and, like, dramas. I guess less so with dramas, yeah. but I know, like, we were, you were a little worried coming into this episode, like, oh, you don't know what, like, you'll be able to talk about. But, like you were just saying with Magnificent Seven, um, there is quite a lot of, like, the influence that you felt upon, like, your own movie-watching experience. Yeah, I think it's not so much that I've seen Japanese cinema, but I've seen movies that have been inspired by or mm-hmm. taken like, direct reference to um, uh, Japanese cinema, like, specifically Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Uh, The characters of C-3PO and R2-D2 are directly inspired by characters from The Hidden Fortress, Mm -hmm. and the whole idea of having the the plot of the movie almost surround the comic relief and have have everything kind of almost like Buffy's uh, Zeppo episode. Um, So there's, like, a lot of that. Um, Like I said before, Magnificent Seven, like... And I, I watched Rashomon for uh, a class in, in college. So, like, my experience is limited, but I think I know, like, we were talking about right before the podcast, I think I've seen more than I, than I assume I've seen mm-hmm. that, or, like, at least uh, um, adaptations or more Hollywood versions of Asian cinema. Like, Snowpiercer mm-hmm. was something that came out three, three, two, three years ago. And it's uh, oh, who's the director? Bong Joon Ho. Right, mm-hmm. and but it's got a lot of American. That movie has a lot of American actors mm-hmm. and British actors like Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an interesting combination of movies that I've seen, but also very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with Willoughby. Snowpiercer is so great. I love Snowpiercer mm-hmm. so much. Um, but yeah, I've definitely haven't seen dramas. I tried to watch um, an episode or two of that goblin drama that you recommended me, HT, oh. but I couldn't find a working like video or stream. Um, I was going to surprise you and be like, I watched the first episode for this episode, and I tried to yesterday, and I couldn't find anything that worked for me. Um, I'll send you it. I'll send you a yeah, link later you, on. Yeah, you got me. You got me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, definitely Asian cinema. Um, I really like Kurosawa. I've seen um, a handful of his films. Throne of Blood is probably my favorite. It, it's his adaptation of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if it's the Shakespeare aficionado <laughs> in me, like loving to see kind of his work in a different 
in a, a new story mm-hmm. and kind of a new way of telling it. Um, but also it's just a beautiful, the cinematography in Throne of Blood, like, blows me away. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and Seven Samurai is really good, too. And I know it's animation, but Miyazaki. Of course. Always and forever. Um, I I tried to watch Battle Royale, and I can't get through it. I get too scared. <laughs> Which is, like, it's, I shouldn't, because, like, I love Tarantino and films like that. But, like, I watch Battle Royale, and I, like, see kids killing each other. And I'm like, this is too freaky. <laughs> And it's so I've, different than Hunger Games, where it's like 20-year-olds who are pretending to be 16-year-olds killing each other. And it's fairly bloodless, too, Hunger oh, Games yeah. is. Oh, yeah, PG-13. Yeah, There's yeah. No well, I mean, like, Battle Royale is, like, hardcore. So yeah. um, it's on my list to, like, finish one day, but I've tried, and then, like, I freak myself out, and I'm like, I can't watch this. <laughs> um, so Battle Royale is definitely on my list to, like, one day make it through. Um, but, yeah, I, I like the classic. I really like Kurosawa a lot. So, Elise, I wanted to ask you about your kind of experience with Asian dramas and Asian cinema and, like, whether that was a sort of process of you becoming more ingrained in, like, this genre of movies. Yeah, well, I actually remember really clearly the first time that I got into dramas. Um, I was in California visiting my aunt, and I grew up without cable, so... You know, anytime we went to a friend's house and they had cable, we got to watch TV and it was really exciting. And I remember she had a channel. I can't remember exactly what it is now. That Korean channel or Japanese channel, right? Yes, it's the Korean channel. It's Mm -hmm. either, I don't think it was Mnet. It's like KBS or something. But anyway, they were playing an episode of a drama called My Lovely Kim Samsoon, which is still one of my favorite dramas to this day. But... Basically, the reason why I got hooked is because the situation was ridiculous, and um, it was a woman sitting down in the lobby with another guy, and she's trying to speak with him. She only speaks Korean. He only speaks English, and she's trying to tell him, you know, my boyfriend and your girlfriend are upstairs, and who knows what they're doing because, you know, they used to date each other, just talking to each other, and he's so confused, like, what she's talking about, and... I don't know, just seeing them trying to interact, but then, you know, eventually we went to bed. The next day, I, you know, turned on the TV again, and this show is still on. I said, what is the show? This is so crazy. Like, more and more little crazy hijinks are happening every single day, and I never found out what the name of that show was, but I just remember being really interested and trying to figure out what it was. And when I came back to school... Um, I was talking to some of my friends, and they said, oh, you know, you can watch this on YouTube. And I was like, what is YouTube? That was, like, the first time that I ever heard of it. And looking for those, um, you know, trying to find this show and not remembering what it was called and, like, trying to explain the scene and nobody's understanding what's happening, I ended up just finding a bunch of different shows. And I don't know. I really loved it. I think it filled... A little void that I was looking for in terms of television. I was getting really sort of bored in the sense that I was never really into the OC. But, you know, this was, you know, it had entirely new storylines. Um, I think it filled a void in that the main character was, you know, like a sort of older, an older, like, 30-year-old woman. She wasn't in shape. She was a patissier. She's not your stereotypical, like, lead 
character Mm -hmm. in a show. And I thought that was really unique because, again, like I said, the most popular show at the time was something like the OC, which are these really beautiful, skinny high schoolers. Um, And so I just felt like, wow, there's a whole new field of stories that are being told in other places of the world that we're just not seeing here. And so I just started seeking them out. And um, I think, like you said, Hoi-Chan, it's really enriched my um, appreciation for, like, storytelling and art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though a lot of, like, the Korean dramas and Japanese dramas aren't as, like, high quality as you would see in American productions, they do tell a lot of different stories that were just, like, that are really enriching and are really fun, um, have show, like, really fun perspectives. For me, actually, um, it was, like, a natural gateway from anime to go to Japanese dramas. I remember, I think the first Japanese drama I watched was Sailor Moon live action. <laughs> and it was 60 episodes. I watched all of it. It was terrible and ridiculous. Like, Luna was literally a toy cat. <laughs> a talking toy cat. Oh, wow. like, did that. Yeah, no, they didn't even, like, move her mouth. It was just a toy cat. That, it like, wasn't even, like, Sabrina the Teenage Witch? <laughs> no, it was literally a toy cat that, like, she carried around. And someone was, like, dubbing it in, but, like, there was no movement or anything. It was oh, hilarious. Gosh. The costumes were gaudy. But... I was really drawn in by the acting and the drama of it all, and that kind of began my descent into J-dramas, which I think you helped because I asked you for um, recommendations, and that kind of began my obsession back in, like, 2005, which was peak J-drama year. We had, like, Hanayori Dango, Nobuto Wa Produced, which is still one of my favorites. I also mentioned yeah. on my podcast on this podcast earlier, a couple episodes ago, and, um, oh, like, Goku-sen or something like that, and they always told, like, really interesting stories that weren't being told here, because there are a lot of, like, kind of more humble and subtle stories that were just, like, not as over-the-top and, like, you know. I think drawing from the anime side, I guess they would Mm -hmm. call it, like, slice of life, where it really is, it's not an elaborate plot. Sometimes you're really just watching, you know, three friends trying to make it through a school year, Mm -hmm. but there's something really human and heartfelt about it that you can't help but be drawn in and I think one thing that's really unique about Asian dramas as well is they're not necessarily like American ones where they're serialized and they go on for like seven seasons and they start having lots of fillers like these are short J-drama ones tend to be about 10 episodes at an hour each Korean ones are longer at about 20 Um, Chinese ones and Taiwanese ones tend to be about the same as Korean ones but they wrap up the entire story in that one season, Mm -hmm. and then you move on to another one. So the number of stories that are being told every year, there's so many. Um, And you really get drawn into a story, but then you get some closure, and then you can move on to the next one instead of feeling like, oh, you know, I love Bones, but we're on to season nine, and the story is completely changed, and, you know, something like that. Like, I think it, it gets the attention it deserves and it leaves off on a high note for most part some yeah. some of them crash and burn but some of them are like eh, but yeah like well, I, <laughs> I agree the short storytelling is really um is really effective um and you're seeing a lot a lot more of that now in um american stories american tv shows where they just go for a season like anthology shows or they only go for like eight episodes or something like that yeah, with like a lot of cable shows are really starting to kick off yeah so um I I think that's why like I'm more interested in American television nowadays. Um, but K dramas are starting to like reel me back in. Um, so I think for me too, when I got into Japanese dramas and Japanese movies, 
it was really a good chance for me to see people who look like me on screen. I talked about this a little bit in our last episode where I was saying I watched a lot of web series but from Asian YouTubers because like I really connected with those people on the screen. Um, whereas like for J dramas, you know, they were speaking a different language, but still it was like somewhat of a similar experience to me. I might be an Asian American, but there are a couple of, you know, attributes that you see like that share that people share across the oceans, so, like, you know, taking your shoes off in the house or like, mm-hmm. you know, having having lots of rice every day, just like eating tons of rice or I don't know, like little quirks like that. So it seems like a really surface reason to watch those, but that is what really connected it for me. Um, so let's move on from like that personal connection and talk about like the, uh, the trends. So we're going to move on a little bit from dramas because it is very much like a more niche thing. But uh, I think that outside of dramas, Japanese movies and Korean movies as well as Korean dramas, like I was talking about before, have really taken off in, like, the mainstream U.S. consciousness. Uh, What do you guys think about that? Like, at least in the past, like, five, ten years, I've seen a lot more, like, Korean influence, Japanese influence, Chinese influence than I've seen, like, even in the Kung Fu Fu exploitation days of, like, Bruce Lee or, like, the Kurosawa days in the 60s. What do you think? Well, I definitely think K-pop is becoming a, a bigger thing. Like... And I think uh, the hit song Gangnam Style <laughs> from 2012 kind of, like, was the real mainstream, it, like, punctured the mainstream music scene with that song. And now, like, I, I know that, I mean, mainly my what I'm seeing is coming from your Facebook feed, <laughs> HD, honestly. Um, I haven't seen a lot outside of, like, that, uh, of, like, Big Bang and all that. Uh, K-pop and stuff. Um, I mean, I have plenty of friends who are into J-dramas and K-dramas and anime and stuff, um, but I couldn't say the culture at large. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I, I I couldn't be definitive about that. Okay. I'm yeah, I think for me it really started, um, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Actually, it was with horror films when, like, movies like The Ring and The Grudge came out and. You know, I knew that they were remakes of Japanese films. And I think, didn't the American Grudge take place in Japan? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so it was like a remake of The Grudge, but it still took place in Japan with Sarah Michelle Gellar, for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems odd that if you would remake it, you wouldn't, like, set it here. Like, you wouldn't try and do your own. That just seems odd to me. Yeah. I don't know. Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Like, I couldn't see why I couldn't have just watched the original Grudge. Um... Um, this is back in the day when I was brave enough to actually watch horror movies (laughs) which HT and I are starting to get better at so we're like on this journey together of like branching out and watching more scary (laughs) films Um, but yeah it really started with that for me Um, and then I started to kind of as I got more into film I think when I got into like college um, and was like studying film I started to actually seek out um films from like different countries and stuff and not just American films so you know I watched like a lot of French films um especially in like films from the Middle East um some of the really good Israeli films actually that I saw and I watched some Asian cinema as well and so that kind of was my it was sort of an educational thing um for me yeah I'm not sure that answers your question no it does I just started talking (laughs) (laughs) 
I do think um, Elise and I have discussed this before, but it's interesting that the Hallyu wave or the Korean wave has been kind of manufactured. So the Korean government actually uses like pop culture as a means of attracting more tourism. So they will sponsor various things like movies and music and um, and dramas. So like that's kind of their like source way of like reaching out to international markets. Actually. We talked about this a little bit, like with anime. That was like in the beginning. That was uh, their way of reaching out to American markets by like creating anime and trying to merchandise that and sell that to American kids. So it's interesting. Like while we saw that with Japan and the, they, that kind of faded off with the Japan boom, Korea has taken up that mantle and started the Korean wave with a uh, government sponsorship, with the help of it. Of course, it's like creating good content too, but it's like yeah. also really interesting. Well, one interesting thing that I found about that is actually the J-Wave was pretty much the same situation. Actually, the Japanese government spent millions of dollars. Um, I found something about it actually back in 2013. uh, Japan authorized a $500 million 20-year fund to promote Japanese culture overseas. And they called um, the program Cool Japan. Hmm. And it's sort of, I don't know, I actually got really interested and I started looking into this and a Harvard uh, theorist sort of calls it soft power. So, you know, imagine civilization, this is basically their cultural victory. They're trying to push it really hard to get tourism, get people interested in their culture, get them to come. And um, it's, I don't know, but they, yeah, they spent millions of dollars to promote uh, Japanese culture, they sent, um, you know, Doraemon became like a little ambassador and would go visit different countries and they were trying to, you know, teach Japanese culture in that way. So my sense of the rise of Asian cinema and drama and just culture um, in the U.S. is largely driven by money. It's government sponsored both ways. There was a Japanese one and then the Japanese one was in response to the bigger wave um, in the early 2000s and late 1990s by South Korea. And so mm-hmm. I think it is cyclical as as each group is um, starting to fund it, you know, they have to respond. And I think especially China as well, since they're doing very, very well economically, you're seeing a lot more films produced by Chinese um, producers or distribution companies. Like most noticeably, I think it's called HK Brothers. I saw that they produced um, Bad Moms, actually, which I was not expecting to see. But I've been seeing their logo pop up in a lot of these, um, you know, slightly smaller movies, but they're definitely reaching out. And then you're seeing things like, uh, you know, Pacific Rim and Great Wall are being very heavily uh, targeted towards Chinese audiences as well. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, they're seeing it as a very mutually beneficial sort of relationship and that's only fueling the growth of its popularity here and abroad. That's an interesting point because um, not only is it coming from the from the continent of Asia but it's coming from Hollywood as well towards Asia because yeah. you're seeing that a lot with like the catering towards Chinese box office which is the largest box office after America I think. Iron Man 3 had a different cut in China mm-hmm. with, a, with a larger mm-hmm. uh, Chinese character. Yeah, yeah, and they did that with apparently like Kong Skull Island as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of just like big blockbusters that they try to cater towards that. They, um, you know, you see a lot of like the Chinese actresses 
actresses or Chinese actors who are really popular just like put in for one scene in that blockbuster, and it's for like, oh, that's for the Chinese market. Particularly, that was noticeable in Kong. Yeah, and also in um, X Men Apoc. Uh, no, X Men Days of Future Past. Yeah, they had a uh, what's her name? The really popular. Is it popular, Fan Bingbing? Yeah, Fan Bingbing. Yeah. She's like the most popular Chinese actress, and they cast her as a superhero, which was a you know big deal for the diversity crowd. But then she had like one line, and I'm like, okay, yeah. that's obviously yeah. for the box well, office. That's the thing is, if they can get into the Chinese market, they're going to make a mil- billions of mo- of dollars mm-hmm. um, in distribution. So. It's fascinating because you know we say we love these things, but we do we are aware that it's so driven by money, like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hollywood and other cultures yeah, too. Like that's it's not true. just it's not purely. It's like yeah, there's a lot of money mm-hmm. reasons behind it. Um, outside of that, though, I do think that there is kind of a creative boom in um, South Korean cinema, that we're seeing a lot of uh, South Korean directors uh, really making a name and being courted by Hollywood. So you see like. Bong Joon-ho, for example, who you mentioned before as the director of Snowpiercer. He originally was a really big South Korean director. He directed The Host, which was a huge monster movie, and made a big hit internationally. And now he's kind of doing a lot of collaborative movies, which I think is really fascinating and really yeah. in, an interesting like step forward for like Hollywood and like the Asian industries. Because like, I mean, that kind of failed with The Great Wall, just because like its setting was not conducive to having a white character. Uh, although I heard that The Great Wall was actually, like, because it was by a Chinese production company and, like, a Chinese director, it was weirdly nationalistic. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah, like, oh. for, like, China, and, like, the Americans were actually just, like, you know, the dumb Americans they who really, didn't know what they were doing. They weren't really white saviors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all about, like, the power of, like, Chinese community and that kind of thing. And I was like, that's really fascinating. So I feel like we're going to be seeing more of those because just like there is also a creative boom in uh, China and in South Korea. Japan is still doing their thing, um, I don't, I, but I haven't heard from them recently. I do want to point out, um, in, ver- in terms of Japan, I've noticed recently that they've kind of been closing off their cultural borders. Uh, there was an announcement recently that uh, AVEX, which is one of like the biggest Japanese music labels, was no longer distributing in um America, like albums in America, or like they're cutting off all exports or something like that, which I find like so, it's so interesting. It's like they put all their money in it in um, the 90s and the early 2000s to be that like pop culture um, weapon almost. Like why are they shutting it off? I don't know if there's an answer to that. Do you know if it's timed with the politics of America? It might be. No, no. It was a couple months ago, so I don't think it was, I don't think it was particularly timed, but it's an interesting point to bring out. Do you have anything to say about that, Elise? Uh, I don't know. Honestly, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. I mean, the sense I get is that with K-pop particularly, you know, it is manufactured and, you know, sorry not to offend a lot of K-pop fans, but it is. And actually, there are a lot of groups who are specifically, you know, targeted towards certain um, areas and aren't necessarily as big or as popular in their home of South Korea. So, for example, there's a group called Rainia that actually happens to do really, really well in Brazil, and they almost exclusively perform over there. You know, they do a couple of things in South Korea, but they're not nearly as big as some of the other names that you know you guys have heard about, like Big Bang or Psy and stuff like that. And um, the sense I'm getting is that they keep churning out 
new acts. You know, these companies are doing very well riding off of the whole how you wave. They keep trading out new acts. Whereas with um, Japan, I can only really think of a couple, maybe like two or three of those types of offices where they get trainees、mm-hmm. and they, they train them for like eight years before they can debut and come out as like a boy band or a girl band. And, you know, one of the biggest ones is Johnny's Entertainment. Um, Johnny Kitagawa, I think he's like over 80 years old.、Yeah. He's been doing this for a long time, but basically he's been wrapped up in a lot of scandals as a lot of his、um, the acts he's debuted. you know, They've been getting into a bit of trouble, and I think just some of their younger acts haven't really been picking up as well. So I'm just wondering if maybe their cultural production is being overpowered a lot by South Korea's. And so. It's just maybe not a financially feasible decision for them to continue to try to keep pushing it.、Um, I'm wondering if that's why they're closing、mm-hmm. off instead of, like, instead of any sort of political reason. It could just be they're not making enough off of it. So they're losing the soft power war, as you might say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, interesting. Who knows? I mean,、um, you know, Warner Brothers Japan is still doing very, very well. And I think it's because they're a global company. But these sort of homegrown, like, Um, you know, Johnny's and Avex, I think their scope has been a little bit limited lately.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, what was I saying before? I feel like we kind of went on a tangent.、Uh, but、I'm、I was.、Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's not your fault. I went on that tangent as well. But I wanted to talk about like the creative boom.、Um, I touched on that a little bit with.、Um, Directors like Park Chan Wook and,、um, <laughs> and uh, Bong Joon Ho. And. Yeah, like there's been like the cult hits like Train to Busan. Do you think that like that is just only going to steadily become more prominent? And like we're also seeing you know, more adaptations of, of Korean and Japanese movies, like you know, the adaptations of the horror movies back in the early 2000s, and now a lot、mm-hmm. of adaptations of Korean thrillers. Like we're seeing, I think The Host is going to be remade, Train to Busan is going to be remade.、Um, yeah. Old、yeah. Boy was remade. Old Boy was remade. Did not do well.、No. <laughs> um, and then they, they, enough, they made, remade a bunch of like, Korean romances、uh, a couple years ago, too, like in the late 2000s、um, or late 2010s. I don't know. Before 2010s.、Um, and、uh, it was like Blake House. And,、uh, I think、lines. they remade My Sassy Girl at one point, but、yeah. it was really, really small. Yeah, like、um, a director DVD.、Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I have to say, I actually found that. You know, whatever disagreements you may have about the Weinstein Company's like, editorial decisions, I think they have been a big supporter of Asian cinema. And I saw that actually back in 2007, they put you know, almost $300 million into a specific Asian film fund.、Mm-hmm. And the Weinstein Company was the one who really pushed Snowpiercer. You know, they, got... they did not push Snowpiercer. They, I mean, screwed, okay. they screwed Snowpiercer over. They cut. Yeah, that's what I mean by the editorial decision. You know, he wanted to cut like 20 minutes out of it and it really messed with the story.、Mm-hmm. But, you know, they were the big financiers. They were the ones that took, you know, the chance on it. Yeah, I just think it, it sucks that because, because they, they, he refused to give in to the edits that the Weinsteins demanded, the Weinsteins basically cut the distribution. So, like, Snowpiercer actually wasn't distributed、oh. because the Weinsteins were like, if you don't. It's Netflix, right? And not to Netflix. It was distributed in like a really small market. It was supposed、okay. to be a bigger market, but they said like you have to like 
you have to basically add a narration to explain your story at the beginning and the end, and they refused to do so. And so the Weinstein said, okay, then we're not distributing. Uh, like, so the Weinstein's actually screwed Snowpiercer over. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, you can read all about it. It's an intense story. Yeah, um, I remember when it was coming out that the the big win was that editorially they won, but distributionally. Uh, yeah, because they didn't give in to the editorial demands, but yeah. then they lost their distribution. Because I remember, I remember seeing that it was available online, not so legally, and then not long after, maybe about a year or less than a year later, it was on Netflix. Oh wow! Mm. Yeah. And but, it, yeah, like it, it, it definitely got a home video release. I think you can buy a blue, the Blu-ray of it, mm. which yeah. uh, the Handmaiden almost wasn't going to get a Blu-ray release. Really? Yeah. Um, and then they, then finally, uh, it was announced maybe about a month or two ago that they were getting a Blu-ray. Mm. It's available now on uh, Amazon Prime. Yeah. So like, I really like that the Weinstein supported Snowpiercer in the first place. I just wish they hadn't. Shot kind of ended up being the bad guys yeah, the I, by the end. It seems like they're using the financial thing as sort of like extorting, you know, it's like you better yeah. give us these or else we're going to cut your film, which, you know, is harmful, but obviously the story stood up well enough that, you know, people loved it. And I it's think, not critically claimed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm really hoping that things like that will just show that you can give people, create, like, I think one of the big hesitations about Asian cinema was how well is it going to translate to the the American scene or the U.S. Mm. scene. And so that's why we see more remakes than complete transplants, you know, mm. or just subtitling and bring it over. But I think more recently people are having an open mind to it, and we're seeing a lot more coming straight over just with subtitles, and not just through specifically Asian film festivals, but even towards, like, some of the larger film festivals. Um and, you know, I think, I don't know, I, I'm really optimistic about that. I'm really hoping to see some more films come out soon, because I think there's a lot of really great stuff that just hasn't been um, spotlighted here, and that's a shame, because they're doing great work. Um, I think that's also why a lot of people have so much writing on uh, Crazy Rich Asian- Asians. Mm. Yeah. The, the Warner Brothers rom-com mm. that's coming out. That's, you know, going to be an all-Asian cast, and it's pretty exciting. But I think um, there's just a lot writing on this film in terms of its success, because that's what Hollywood does. It's like, if one thing fails that has some sort of diverse element, that means that, like, American audiences don't want it, which is not what that means. But And they're still always surprised when a female-driven um, comedy gets successful like bridesmaids or they're still surprised when an all black cast like hidden figures gets successful they're like oh that's an anomaly so like it might be written off as an anomaly but hopefully it's an indicator for success but yeah you tapped on uh, tapped into exactly what i wanted to say at least like i really hope that there's more of an open mind now for asian cinema and like there isn't the fear of trans of like, you know, mistranslating or like not being able to understand like whatever that those movies like that perspective comes from because just like there's so much critically acclaimed, so many good works of art coming out of South Korea, Japan, China now that like you know it might be more feasible for them to be distributed in the U.S. and I hope that's the case because we did see The Handmaiden in, in theaters and like we're seeing more of them in theaters now. Um, and uh, or we may be seeing more collaborative uh, movies like The Great Wall or like uh, Snowpiercer. Uh, Bong Joon Ho is making a new movie, um, Okja, 
yeah. uh, which is starring. Ooh, there's who's the American? Tilda Swinton again. Yeah, Tilda Swinton <laughs> in again. But there's like a, the main actress is American, but then like there's half Korean cast, half um, half American cast, or half Western cast. But yeah, this I think this is the Netflix film, right? Yes, it's for Netflix. Yeah. So yeah, I think like with greater points of accessibility, like Netflix, like all the streaming things, we will see be, be seeing more of it. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal's in it. Oh, Jake Gyllenhaal's in it. Tilda Swinton, Lily Collins, okay. Stephen Yun, mm-hmm. Paul Dano, uh, Giancarlo oh, Esposito. Uh, what a cast! And, yeah, really. Yeah, like there's <laughs> a lot of people there. So it's really exciting for me. I think like this is a really exciting time for Asian cinema in general. And um, I do want to say about earlier, like the whole fear of not being the films not being translatable, and why like there's more of a popularity for like French films or like European films is that like you know you can relate more. Like Americans can relate more to like people who have similar lifestyles to them. So that might be why those films were more accessible but now I think with a larger um, Asian the- like movie going population um, there's a study recently actually that said like Asian Americans were the largest um, group of people to see movies in the past year I saw that yeah so like I think that like that is a driving force in like Asian cinema coming forward and Asian dramas becoming more popular and like you know Asian, pe- Asian Americans in general becoming more aware about diversity so I'm also optimistic like you Elise and I was gonna say, do you think? Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, do you think kind of like um, American productions um, featuring like Asian American talent or people behind the scenes, like you have Fresh Off the Boat, or you know what Aziz Ansari did with Master of None, mm-hmm. in kind of exploring um, his kind of Indian culture and everything? Like, do you think having those things here will help as well in terms of like because they're people say they're a bit more accessible because, like, they're in English and they're, like, on ABC or Netflix. um, And it's kind of, like, a step forward in just kind of broadening this horizon, I guess. Yeah, I think it'll be a huge help, although it might be harder for them because the whole process of bringing forward Asian-American actors and having them being able to, like, get cast in a movie or cast in a show is a bit harder than, like, you know, in the Asian, in Japan or South Korea, like, the industries there, it's easier to make a movie, and, like, the difficult part is distributing to America, uh, whereas yeah. here, like, the process at the beginning is much harder. So I do think that, like, that progress is being made, and I'm really excited for when it does, because, you know, it is easily, more easily relatable to me as an Asian American than, like, you know, a Japanese film or a South Korean film. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful both ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think NPR actually just came out with an article recently that was evaluating some of the Nielsen data, and it showed that for shows with primarily um, black main characters like Blackish, How to Get Away with Murder, Atlanta, actually the majority of the audience members were non-black. And so they're really getting, you know, the data just shows that you don't have to look like the main character to relate to it or to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And it's really debunking the myth of, oh, well, they're not going to be able to relate unless there's, you know, the bland everyman character. Mm -hmm. You know, it's showing that audiences are much more complex and much smarter than a lot of the, um, I don't know, I I guess the producers seem to think they are. Mm -hmm. And they can relate to different characters you know if the story is strong people will come watch it yeah like uh get out 
Even, exactly. even though it's very rooted in African-American culture and white people exploiting that culture, there's also the broader story of, like, meeting your in-laws or future in-laws, like, like meeting meeting your girlfriend or boyfriend's parents. Like, that's mm-hmm. always, like, a, a stressful thing, and that was what Jordan Peele was talking about. Like, white people can see that movie and relate to some aspects of it, and black people can see that movie and also relate to different aspects of it. And so, like, that is, like, a is I think it helps your point of like how like Atlanta had mostly I guess non-white people watch it which is interesting I non-black non-black mm-hmm. um and so that was an interesting like uh yeah people are more becoming uh, more complex percentage. yeah yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah HT I wanted to ask you because I mean I always think about um Lost and since we're all big Lost fans and I remember like in high school like watching that um and with like you know exactly with like Jin and Sun and like yeah. their whole storyline and just how like wonderful they were and the storylines that they were given um and because I think Lost explored that really well of like within the world of Lost you had some of the survivors not really know how to approach Jin and Sun and like not how to talk to them that whole like relatability like they're different from me and then as you got to know Jin and Sun you realize they're actually not all that different from you mm-hmm. and they became part of the core group and you know same with Saeed yeah as well so like I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts on that but I always think of that and I'm always like love what Lost did I think that's a great metaphor for like the coming together of all of these different perspectives and like the globalization essentially of uh these movies and like you know the ability of people to like relate to everything and Lost was one of the first really diverse shows that I watched and I enjoyed it so much Elise and I used to watch it actually together and we we mourned the show when it ended <laughs> um yeah it's I think that's a really good metaphor Anya and I I agree with you I like that idea can I throw in a plug for Battlestar Galactica as well yeah. Um, yes. Yes, always, you can. You can always, always. Throw a plug for BSG. Willoughby and I love. B- I forget HT. Do you? I've not seen it yet. Okay, I'm giving you. The okay, Willoughby and I love BSG. <laughs> so Elise, bring it on. Bring I it actually on. Hulu. just. I just started watching it. Um, so I'm, you know, working my way through the first season, and so I was blown away by you know, the complexity of the storytelling, but also it had such a diverse cast, but it didn't feel the need to draw attention to the fact that, like, pat me on the back, look how diverse I am. And this was back in the early 2000s when I feel like it wasn't necessarily on, you know, the public conscious as much. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite characters is Boomer, and she's Asian-American, played by Grace Park. And I love that she has one of the most complex storylines, but it's not because of her her race you know it's because she's a very complex you know female character thrown into this situation and I don't know I am always just blown away by what a strong show Battlestar Galactica is and I think you know it's very easy to do something like that it's very easy to cast people of color without having them be their token race character, you know, and be like, oh, well, we have to represent somebody here, so let's put them here. It doesn't seem like they were doing that. They're like, you know, we want a complex character. She does a really good job. Let's have her. Um, you know, so I, I love these, you know, of course I love Fresh Off the Boat and these really race-conscious um, conscious shows, but on the other hand, I also really love ones that can be diverse, but don't need to, you know, 
draw like attention don't to need it. to feel so mm-hmm. um, proud of themselves for doing so because it's not it's not something we like. Sorry, you can cut this. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll ask you to cut that part, but I think you know once we can get to that point where it's sort of you know like in Master of None where it's like not casting him for the sake of like oh we need a character like this it's mm-hmm. like allowing people to compete for these roles um, will only broaden whatever roles that Asian Americans are able to get in the future and I think it's interesting that you, you bring up Battlestar Galactica because the humans in Battlestar Galactica are not from Earth so like they're all the cultures that we know of Earth that's not who these people are coming from like mm-hmm. they have a, they have a lot of uh, people of color and white people, but like they're not, like it's not the same. That it's not the same. They're not the same humans. Mm. So it's very interesting. Yeah. And and like whereas Star Trek is the evolution of culture to the point where you can have like a full ca- cast of characters on a spaceship, and you know no one cares about the race because you know they've they've evolved past. To, uh, racism and all that mm-hmm. uh, stuff that they talk about in, this, in, in Star Trek, and like you know, pe- everyone's at, in a utopian society now. Mm-hmm. Um, this, yeah, I was gonna say this is like talking about like TV, TV shows and stuff. Not to like call out your boy HT, but Firefly is the fa- is my favorite thing that Whedon has produced. It's the only thing of Whedon's that I like really genuinely like. Mm-hmm. Um, but that. Firefly did always strike me as very odd and very cringy of the fact that they have all this Asian culture and Asian influence, and yet there are no Asian characters in the yeah, show. That was always a very odd. Yeah, because they the talk show. about how Earth was like like the U.S. and China combined powers. Yeah, yeah. So China was like a huge influence culturally, but there were no and like they spoke in Chinese for a lot of like the slang and stuff. That that yeah, was, that's what they got no actual, away with swear words. Yeah, like, using bastardized Chinese language. Yeah, but then there's no actual Chinese characters in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Whedon is not, like, the greatest with diversity, but he's learning, you know? <laughs> he's learning. <laughs> That's going to be one of those things we're always just going to have to agree to disagree on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is totally fine. <laughs> it's fine. We don't have to but agree yeah, on everything. I w- and I want to, like, I think it goes also just beyond, I know we're mostly all about, like, movies and TV shows mm-hmm. and stuff, but, like, I think it also, like, goes out to books and stuff I think have had some really great representation over the years. I've talked talked about it before, but Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson series has a lot of diverse characters, but like you were saying, Elise, they're complex and rich characters, not because of the fact that they're diverse. It's just because of who they are, you know, as characters. Um, And I think that's really interesting. So, and, you know, there are Asian characters in Percy Jackson that are really wonderful characters, but not, and it's not like, I have an Asian character in my series. It's not about that. So, just wanted to give a quick shout out to that as well. All right. Oh, well, that was kind of a tangent, but I think that was a good way. I do like that, like the addition of like the talk about diversity in it, because I think that's a really big part of the, the whole discussion of today. So I think that's a good way to wrap up our discussion on like Asian cinema and Asian movies and TV and kind of the uh, issue of diversity in both um people and representation, but also in creativity and the kind of content being brought over to the U.S. from Asia or 
other way around or collaborative pieces. So yeah, I think that's a good way to wrap it up. So let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. So, Elise, why don't you go first since you're our guest for the week? Okay. Um, well, one of the shows I've really been loving lately is on Netflix, and it's called Terrace House, Boys and Girls in the City. And I think it's actually really relevant to what we're talking about here because I've been obsessed with this show, but I pretty much just watched it for myself. But in the past month, actually, two people, two separate people who almost never watch any sort of Asian cinema or TV came up to me and said, oh, my gosh, you have to watch this show on Netflix. It's called Terrace House. And then we bonded over the fact that it's it's a great show. And I think it really just speaks to, you know, the power of the medium now um, that we can have these um, shows streamed almost instantaneously and you know, the Netflix algorithm sort of shows you different shows that you wouldn't have watched otherwise, and it really is coming into, um, you know, the mainstream. Like, I was seeking it out, but they had found it um, and brought it to me. And Terrace House, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a mix of reality TV and the sort of slice of life that we've been talking about. But it's not, you know, it's not a dramatic reality show. It's literally three boys, three girls. They live in this nice house with a pool and a car, and the cameras really just hang back. It's gorgeous cinematography um, and really nice music, and it's just very calm. But it literally just sits back and watches them live out their lives. You know, they can stay as long as they want. It's not scripted. Okay. So, you know, they kind of just try to interact as roommates. And really, you know, to give you an example, like, apparently... You know, sometimes they fall in love and sometimes they want to date. But the first kiss didn't happen until about three, like 13 weeks until they were living together. You know, so it's not like a lot of these very scripted ones where they like to throw in the drama and the relationships early. It's like it's actual real people trying to figure out the relationships with one another. Um, and like to give an example, one of the biggest conflicts in the show was when a guy's girlfriend ate this really expensive beef that he had gotten from a client um, without telling him. He just got really mad at her. And as anybody would be, you know, if your roommate ate some of your stuff without telling you. (laughs) And you wouldn't think that that makes for good TV. But again, like with these slice of life things, you are watching real people interact with one another. And I think one of the great things about Tara's house is it, it didn't try to, you know, cut away to something more interesting. It literally just let them come together, have their little house meeting, talk it out, and, you know, you find out what it was really about and what was really bothering him. And there was just something very vulnerable and very human about it that I really loved. Like, it's reality TV at its finest, you know, at its most true. And, you know, it's it's so interesting because it's so mundane and so real. Mm. Um, so... I only have good things to say about Terrace House. Um, you know, some of the characters I didn't really care for. The second half gets a little a little more dramatic. Um, but I think it's a, it was a really interesting format. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that it drew from the Japanese TV show um, norms where it had commentators. 
So actually, they had a panel of about, I think, like six people sitting together on a couch. And one thing that was interesting, instead of like hosts sort of knowing what's going on beforehand, they didn't know anything. So they were watching the show as you're watching it. And then after every dramatic part, they would cut away to the commentators, and then the commentators would sit and discuss what just happened on the show. And they had some really hilarious insights. But I thought one thing that was really funny about it is it's kind of like you're watching the show with them because they're discovering things at the same time you are. And this is going to sound so sad, but if you're watching it by yourself, it's kind of like watching it with a community where they're all like, oh my gosh, did you just see what just happened? Or like, that guy's ridiculous, you know? And I thought that that was a really unique way to present TV that we don't just, we don't normally see. You know, we have hosts, but we don't necessarily have... um, like fellow viewers I think real real time commentary or real time analysis mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. they're starting to deconstruct all of the scenes as it's happening and um, you know I, I thought it was hilarious it definitely added to my enjoyment of the show alright thank you Elise this is actually a Japanese reality show so um, Elise didn't mention this before but it is uh, it's streaming on Netflix and it's a Japanese reality show with subtitles um, and yeah, sounds fascinating. It's only one season. Um, well, actually, there's a spinoff now called Aloha State, which takes place in Hawaii, which I also saw <laughs> and binge watched pretty fast. But um, yeah, it's a it's a Japanese show. Uh, there's technically two seasons now. Okay. All right. So my really like this week, uh, The Guardian on Monday, published an excerpt from Susan Bordeaux's new book called The Destruction of Hillary Clinton. And I'm just really excited for this book. It's actually, it was published on Tuesday, so the day after they published the excerpt. Um, And I'm just really excited for the book. It's basically about kind of how and why she lost the election last year um, and kind of the forces that destroyed her campaign. Um... And the excerpt that The Guardian published was really compelling and really excellent. And I'm just really excited for this book. Um, I haven't read it. It just published, so I haven't read it yet. But the excerpt was great. And I really love Hillary Clinton. So that's my really like this week is some, like, vindication for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it's a really great article. And I was talking about how um, Bernie Sanders was kind of the downfall of the Democratic Party, or brought about it anyways. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was campaign. very very interesting take. It's a lot of thoughts that I've had myself. And the fact that someone's already written a whole book about it is kind of incredible. Actually, like, the turnaround is also... That is well, amazing. if you think about it, I'm sure she was, you know, researching and writing bits of it along the, along the way. And I'm guessing she probably had a different bro- a different book in mind uh, on November 7th. Unfortunately, yes. I have a feeling you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, it was probably going to be like the triumph of Clinton uh, or yeah. whatever. So. Yeah, but, you know, even though it's it's kind of sad, um, I'm excited to, like, see her take on things. And she's a professor of gender studies, so it's a topic she knows well. So, yeah, so that's The Destruction of Hillary Clinton by Susan Bordeaux. Okay, let's check it out. Um, Willoughby, what is your really like for this week? So, we're a podcast, 
and we listen to other podcasts. Uh, and most recently, the from the makers of Serial and This American Life, uh, they've come out with a new podcast called S-Town. And uh, it's kind of incredibly curious to listen to. It's uh, Have you guys listened to any of it yet? I haven't. Haven't. Okay, so basically it's very similar style in terms of, like, This American Life and Serial, where it's like, you know, this one guy goes on a journey to, like, figure out what the hell's going on with, with a certain story. The thing about Serial is that you kind of know what's happening the entire time. The thing about S-Town is that after episode two, the the story is completely different. Um, basically, I won't spoil anything, but basically the story that they're marketing the show with um, is only really the first two episodes. Um, and there's a twist and a spoil that's heartbreaking, like truly heartbreaking. And the rest of the series is basically the fallout from that twist. Mm, how um, many episodes is it? Seven, and they're all released. Uh, okay. they released they released them all at once, whereas Serial was released uh, weekly in the first season and by, and twice every twice every two weeks once every two weeks uh, for the second season. Mm. Um, this time it's not technically Serial season three, but it's from the same people. Uh, it's not it's not Sarah Koenig, it's Brian Reed. Um, he does a great job narrating. Uh, he really takes you into the whole story, and you really get a sense of. The people he's interviewing and the, the basically the main character profile that he has going on. Uh, and it's just like a great uh, story that's being told. I don't really know. I'm only on episode four or five, so I really don't know where it's how it's how it ends. But I mean, right now, I'm all, it's already miles beyond what I thought it was going to be. Hmm. Um, so I really I would really check it out. It's. It's true crime, but also not. You know, it starts out as true crime. It, enough to say it becomes fictitious, but just, like, the story really becomes something else um, after about episode two. Okay. Interesting. All right. That yeah. sounds... I'm already compelled. Yeah. like I'm, I was compelled, like, from the original premise, and then once that premise was kind of resolved, and then the story took a turn, and I'm like, whoa. So. Yeah, you sold it really well. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I've watched a lot of Mad Men, so, you know, my advertising skills have been a little bit different. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. All right, HT, what is yours? All right. My I really like this week is I have been uh, catching up on a show that uh, has been sort of in the pop culture zeitgeist, at least around people that I have followed on Twitter, but I haven't watched it until now. Uh, Jane the Virgin. It's a delightful show. Oh, both Anya and Willoughby had like similarly delighted faces, but in a, in a way that Anya was just like, "Oh, I love that show," and Willoughby's like, "Oh, I've heard of that show." I've never yeah. watched that show. It's on my list. Really? I've oh, never never mind then. Oh, yeah, it's no, so good. It's, it's. I'm planning it to be my summer watching this summer. So. Oh, I hope I hope Dana hasn't didn't just hear you just now because you know season three. Oh no, Dana knows, and she has been pressuring me to watch it for ages. Oh, okay. It's so, so fun. Yeah, it's high on my list. So sell me more, HD. Okay, I will. So it's sort of, it's based on this Venezuelan telenova, um, also titled Jane the Virgin. Um, But 
the U.S. version, the CW version, is sort of a satire of it. So they have this narrator who is described as the Latin lover narrator. And he always narrates the thoughts of the um, characters going in and also the tropes of telenovelas as they happen. So, for example, if two characters get stuck in an elevator, the Latin lover narrator is just like, this is one of the classic tropes of telenovelas where two characters are stuck, stuck in an elevator. It's called stuck in an elevator it's it's so funny and biting and tongue-in-cheek and gina rodriguez is so warm and lovely as uh the titular jane the virgin and she just she sells really well this character and it's it it, it gets to like some ridiculous soapy heights but in a way that's very self-aware of it so it's it's all in good fun because you're just like oh it it knows like the limits of the telenovelas and the soap operas that it's poking at and it um it does it all with good humor. It actually reminded me a lot of, I was, I got into it back when I was doing my self-care because I was looking into doing, go back, going back into K-dramas, and it reminded me a lot of K-dramas. I, I enjoyed that form of escapism in the sunny Florida town, and I was just like, this is exactly what I need and exactly what I needed in this political climate, as Anya was Very saying. Very fitting. Mm-hmm. So it's so fun. I recommend it. Is the, ori- is the original show as self-aware as the CW show? Do Not you know? that I know of. I think that was the original, the new twist with the CW show. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I yeah. like the idea of it being so meta and, and uh, self-aware. Yeah, it is, it's really fun. Because like, Jane, um, Jane, the uh, main character, is obsessed with telenovelas. So she sees a lot of it from that perspective. So it's kind of um, implied that the narration is going on in her head or something, or it's like come, kind of from, from her POV. Cool. That sounds delightful. I it's definitely very high on my list. So I'll let you know when I start watching it too. <laughs> I was I'm and surprised you haven't watched it yet, Anya, because that is one that you have recommended to HT to, during the, the self her self care. It is. So I was like, I think oh, it's yeah. because I just know that it's that type of show everyone yeah. is always talking about it but i was like watch it even though i haven't yet <laughs> yeah i mean maybe it's because i know you, you just watch a ton of the cw shows so i just assumed that you already watched it um but no, you know not yet but it's on my list it's definitely up there i had to get through you know cold war spies first so of course of course All right, so that is our episode for the week. If any of you guys have thoughts on Asian cinema or Asian dramas or Terrace House, the podcast S-Town, Jane the Virgin, or Susan Bordeaux's The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, definitely come chat with us. Where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook. Uh, You can search for us on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe to us there. And uh, where can they find you guys? You can find me at hchanbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. You can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. And can they find you anywhere, Elise? In the library, studying all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode, Elise. It's been really fun. Um, And uh, thank you all for listening in. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.